Support for My Fellow Kansans was provided by the United Methodist Health Ministry Fund, working to improve the health and wholeness of Kansans since 1986 through funding innovative ideas and sparking conversations in the health community. Learn more at healthfund.org. Stay tuned for scenes from next week's Gunsmoke. If there's one Kansas town that pretty much everyone's heard of, it's Dodge City. It's the star of a Wild West narrative that sparked the imaginations of people around the globe. Stories of gunslingers, ranchers battling sodbusters, and the mercenary lawmen recruited to keep the peace. Wyatt Earp, Bat Masterson, and for two full decades on CBS, Gunsmoke's Marshal Matt Dillon. And you take the rest of your men, and you get out of Dodge. Those stories proved irresistible to old-time Hollywood. The most spectacular world premiere ever given a motion picture. Two of the biggest names from Hollywood's past, Errol Flynn and Olivia de Havilland, not only starred in the 1939 movie Dodge City, they traveled to Kansas for its premiere. Over 200 stars, studio executives, and newspaper men, headed by Errol Flynn, boarded the 14 car Santa Fe Dodge City special en route for the premiere celebration. Without question, it was the glitziest day in Dodge's dusty, storied cowpoke history. And Dodge City, a town of 10,000 people, was for the day the focal point of the entire Middle West. In the 80 years since, Dodge has had its ups and downs. But now this small city is holding its own, better than most towns scattered across rural Kansas. It's nearly triple the size it was on the day it played host to Hollywood. That's largely because of the industrial meatpacking industry and a growing population of immigrants, drawn to work that offers at least an opening to the American middle class. That same draw also helps steady other nearby beefpacking hubs like Garden City and Liberal. But there are other reasons, too. Other things happening that make people in Dodge City and the region just a tad more optimistic about their future. I'm Jim McLean, and this is My Fellow Kansans, a podcast from the Kansas News Service. Okay, so compared to lots of communities in Kansas, Dodge City is faring well. From 2000 to 2017, its population grew by almost 10%, and it's held pretty steady since. Immigration is the main reason, but there are others. The town is making a play to be the entertainment capital of the region, a region without much else to lure travelers off the highway. A couple of multi-million dollar projects anchor that effort, including one to gussy up the downtown historic district, when finished next year, it will feature a renovated replica of Old Front Street with Miss Kitty's Long Branch Saloon and a bigger Boot Hill Museum. A casino that's been around for a while and a new distillery are also part of that effort. It's the attraction of the Old West. It's sort of the mystique of what, you know, Dodge City was, uh, the, the pop culture aspect of it that still, that still resonates with, with the, the consumer of uh, the Gunsmoke era. By spiffing things up and trading even more heavily on their colorful past, City officials and a new group of entrepreneurs hope to double the town's tourist trade. But today, just as in its Wild West heyday, Dodge is above all else a cattle town. That's what struck Atlantic Magazine's James Fallows when he and his wife Deborah visited while researching our towns, their recent book about rural America. Here's Fallows reading a bit from that book. Something like a quarter of the beef eaten anywhere in the United States comes through the feedlots, 
packing houses, and shipment centers of this corner of Kansas. The employees in these factories are nearly all immigrants. In the 1980s, a substantial number were recent arrivals from Vietnam. Now they're mainly Mexicans, or from Central and South America, plus an increasing number of Somalis and other Africans, plus some Southeast Asians and others. Between them, Cargill and National Beef employ more than 5,000 people at massive slaughterhouses that dominate the east edge of town and foul the air over the entire city. The jobs at these plants are unpleasant and often dangerous. Stun animals prior to slaughtering. Sever jugular veins to drain blood and facilitate slaughtering. Slit open, eviscerate, and trim carcasses. Saw, split, or scribe carcasses into smaller portions to facilitate handling. But the relative good pay and benefits, Fallows says, are magnets for immigrants. A man who had been a manager for a large packing house in the area told us, I can tell you that no matter what wages you paid, you are not going to find any reasonable number of native-born Americans who will do these jobs, he said. He preferred not to be identified. Your Anglo community is not going to work there, pretty much regardless of the wage. The economic and cultural survival of places like Dodge City and Garden City depends on immigrants, some of whom arrive legally and many of whom don't. There are some pockets of people here who are old school. The one-time packing house manager told us they'd like to take America back and so on. But by and large, people here, Anglo and Hispanic and otherwise, recognize that we're in this together. The immigrants are the engine that keeps this community alive. Those workers have transformed Dodge City into what demographers call a minority-majority community. Today, about two-thirds of people in Dodge are Latino. Dodge's transformation, along with those of Garden and Liberal, are creating an ethnic mosaic in southwest Kansas, one that sets the region apart from other whiter rural places that hit their population peaks generations ago and have been hemorrhaging people ever since. A lot of our western Kansas counties hit highs before the Dust Bowl, 1910, in Logan, Gove, 1910, Sheridan in 1930, at the start of the Dust Bowl. Where we see growth in western Kansas is in Hayes, with the, around the university, and around the packing plants and the cattle industry in southwest Kansas, which is where we see immigration. That's Matt Sanderson, a rural sociologist in fifth-generation Kansan. He left the state for a stretch. Now he's back teaching at Kansas State, his alma mater. Sanderson sees all kinds of worrying trends for rural Kansas. Describing a color-coded map at a recent conference, he said big chunks of the state have lost so many people that they once again meet the definition of frontier, literally wilderness at the edge of a settled area. These are projected population changes going forward into 2044. This is where we think we're going, right? And red is population loss, blue is gain, the darker blue are larger gains, and that white is sort of in that middling category, right? That is not a healthy population profile. That scares, if you're interested in growth, that is, this is a scary looking map. And I'm not one to, for hyperbole, but when I first saw this, I said, oh, and I've, I work in a lot of Western Kansas areas with farmers. I, I do a lot of work, I'm, I have family out there. 
we're talking about over 2014 numbers. Wallace County is expected to lose half its population over 2014 by 2044. Um, and in some of these places, we're talking about being able to fit counties into large lecture halls at Kansas State University. Well, maybe just a touch of hyperbole, but still a pretty gloomy picture. That is, unless those hoping to revitalize rural Kansas can come up with ways first to stop people from leaving, and second, to attract newcomers. I know this is hard to see, but this, you don't have to see are, Sanderson's chart to understand that, it. This is an Just listen. Point. There's only three ways that populations change. This is one of the most simple things I ever teach, right? So you, people either are born into a population and they add to the population. People die out of a population, they leave that population. Or people move in and out. That's the only way you get change. So which one is going to be easiest for us to uh, manipulate with policy? That's really the question. It's possible, Sanderson says, to encourage people to have more children and give folks health care that extends their lives. But those things don't stop people from leaving. And that exodus, he says, is picking up pace. So our net migration rate since 2010 has moved from roughly zero or slightly positive to negative every year since 2013. Every year since 2013, we've lost more people than have come into the state. The steady loss of population, more people leaving than staying, is made worse, Sanderson says, by the fact that too many of us who remain in Kansas are past our prime working years, especially in the state's rural outposts. So we're being hit by a couple things at once, an aging population and uh, not a lot of in-migration. Combined, those things drive a troublesome trend that suddenly worsened between 2010 and 2017. In rural areas, lost 5% of their pop working age population on average in those seven years. That's a I had to check it, okay, it's a very large number. So this means we need to retain who we have and we need to attract newcomers. Those seem to be the, the policy levers and those are both very closely tied, of course, to economic opportunity. A shrinking and presumably less skilled workforce makes it much harder to crank up commerce. It's a classic rock and hard place problem for rural Kansas. But if there is an exception to the rule, it's southwest Kansas, where immigrants actually drive growth. People like Ernesto de la Rosa. His family immigrated from Mexico in stages. My two older brothers um, came to the United States as probably at the age of 15. They worked at the meat processing plants, and then we came to visit. Then we decided, after multiple times of visiting, uh, we decided to stay in Dodge City. And where did you come from? Uh, I came from uh, a state called Zacatecas, Mexico, uh, and uh, very kind of desert type, uh, very rural as well. Where is it located in Mexico? Located probably the north central region in Mexico. And it was rural too, you say? Very rural. My dad uh, comes from a background of farming, of uh, cattle and such, um, and so very rural. Well, so Dodge City is a natural destination for some It is very natural, very similar. Um, of course, you have uh, better amenities. Uh, maybe technology is a lot better here. De La Rosa is now the assistant to the city manager. He landed in Dodge when he was 13 and watched the city's transformation. I think it's, you know, it came little by little. Um, but I think... The community has changed quite a bit in the sense that we're now 70% Latino or Hispanic. Um, 
the sector, the labor, uh, the, the labor demand obviously had to do a lot with it. I think for the most part, people embraced it. Uh, people welcomed the new immigrants, the new neighbors. But I think what the community was not ready for is the unique needs of such community, the needs of the immigrant laborer, the needs of undocumented people, the needs of uh, households of mixed status. And when I say that, we have a lot of households who the kids are American citizens, the parents are uh, first-generation immigrants uh, and are either in the process of adjusting status or undocumented. So you see a lot of that. Um, and so I think the systems in place, such as local government, the school district, uh, the county, and others, were not ready for those needs. And specifically, how were they not ready? Right now, what we struggle with is with the ref refugee community from African countries. Mm -hmm. You have a lot of dialects. We don't have an interpreter in our organization or uh, department to be able to help that person because of a language barrier. It must seem somewhat ironic to you. Right. Coming, you know, obviously the Hispanic Latino population in Dodge is big, right. but it's not the only uh, ethnic population of migrants right. here. I mean, you have the Somalis, and you have a, a pretty, uh, pretty large Asian population here as well. And I think we've gone to the point where, with Latino or the Spanish language, we've, we've are prepared, and we know what to expect, and we know what to do. With the other dialects, such as the Guatemalan from the, the Guatemalan community from the African countries, you struggle with those because you can't find that person who is either fluent on that dialect or fluent in English. And that does make Im integrating a population like right. that very difficult, doesn't it? I mean, yeah. they're just some yeah. basic yeah. things that, that they need and that you need from them. Exactly, and th that's just one side of the entire story. Aside from that, there are there are cultures within that community. They are uh, traditions within that community that that you must understand and you must learn how to address it. And then also you have to understand that just because they are Somali or just because they come from an African country, they also have different tribes. Oftentimes those tribes don't get along or don't speak to each other. So you have to understand those logistical This aspects. sounds really hard to me. Yes. Here's something else that's hard. Ernesto's future in America is very much in doubt. He's here under rules set by DACA, the executive order signed by President Obama in 2012. It allows so-called dreamers, the children of undocumented immigrants, to stay and work while they pursue citizenship or green cards. Ernesto applied for a green card 16 years ago, but still doesn't have one. That means if the U.S. Supreme Court invalidates Obama's executive order, Ernesto could be sent back to Mexico a place he no longer considers home. I don't remember the names. I, I remember the faces. I don't remember certain individuals. I don't remember certain places anymore unless I see a picture or a video. Um, and so, yes, I remember remotely doing some of those things um, in Mexico, 
but the majority of my life now has been in the United States. So you're here, quote-unquote, legally because of your DACA status. Right. But as we all know, given the debate at the federal level, I mean, that can go any number of different ways. Correct. Right? So are you anxious about all that? Oh, yeah, definitely. And I think the, the DACA recipients uh, community will tell you there's a lot of anxiety, there's a lot of uncertainty, and there's definitely fear. Fear of the program being taken away, um, fear that the next year there's no DACA and I find myself with no authorization for employment. Now what? I wouldn't be able to work for the city or anywhere else. If all the undocumented immigrants living in Dodge were suddenly deported, De La Rosa says it could cripple the local meatpacking plants. The processing plants would tell you that they rely for the most part on the Latino um, community for their labor. Um, if, if a raid were to happen, just like it happened in Mississippi, on both plants, you're talking suddenly hundreds of employees now gone. New fears in immigrant communities this morning after huge ice raids in several Mississippi cities. Hundreds of immigrant workers and loaded them onto buses as co-workers and family members. The massive walked. raid involves several hundred federal ICE agents who surrounded the perimeters of at least seven food processing Sharice facilities. Sharice Teban is the outgoing city manager of Dodge. She says the town's cultural transformation wasn't always smooth. There were Latino gang problems for a while that gave Dodge a rougher reputation than, say, Garden City. But she says those and other issues are pretty much in the past. When the, the plants first opened, the workforce tended to be very transient. Mm. They would come in and work for a year or two years and, and take their money and go to a different community and open a business. Mm. And then, so you saw a ton of rental properties that were often left pretty sad shape. Mm -hmm. And now I think the population's much more stable. They're far less transient. And they're buying those rental properties and owning those homes and taking pride in those homes. Alejandro Rango Lopez graduated from Dodge City High School last year. He's now attending the University of Kansas, but plans to come back when he graduates. His family arrived in Dodge in the 1990s. And he says while relations between the factions have improved, there's still work to be done. As far as living and interacting with each other, um, you know, white, Hispanic, black, um, immigrant populations are getting along. But my feeling toward, toward this whole thing is as long as people aren't feeling empowered enough to be represented in, in um, elected office, then we're not fully integrated and we're not at the place where we should be. Arango Lopez says Latinos need to have a greater voice in local affairs. They're underrepresented in government and other leadership positions. I think the solution has to come from people, from, from minorities and from, from leaders in those communities uh, standing up and running for office and being more vocal about issues that they care about. Joanne Knight runs the Economic Development Office for Dodge City and Ford County. She's been at it for nearly 30 years. And like many of the community's white leaders, she says whatever tensions existed early in the city's transformation have dissipated. Most people, she says, get that immigrant labor and the meatpacking industry 
are keeping the town alive. Oh, it's huge. Uh, we, we know that they are our largest industry. We do have a lot of smaller manufacturers and um, you know, tourism and some of those other things to fall back on, but they, they would not keep this community totally afloat. I mean, they, we, we are definitely dependent. There are so many trucking companies and service companies and you know, so many value-added related companies that um, it would definitely be a huge hit on this whole state if something happened to it. so. But of course, something could happen to it. American consumers could come to prefer fake meat produced in labs to the real thing, or automation could someday replace the workers in bloody aprons who slaughter and slice cattle into various cuts of meat to be packaged neatly for the grocery aisle. In a story for Harvest Public Media a few years ago, reporter Luke Runyon said that JBS, the world's largest meatpacking company, was working to perfect that technology. And while robots have revolutionized the manufacturing industry, meat packers have stubbornly held on to workers. But that could be changing. Late this fall, JBS bought a controlling share of Scott Technology, a New Zealand-based robotics firm. This is a very innovative and exciting company that we invested in. We're excited to see uh, what they come up with. That's JBS spokesman Cameron Brewitt. He says the world's largest meat packer is looking at how robots could fit into their lamb and pork plants first. Sheep and pigs tend to be more uniform than beef cattle. Now when it comes to um, beef packing, beef processing, uh, the fabrication of the animal, it's very difficult to automate beef processing. The meatpacking robots of today use vision technology to slice and dice. But the key to butchery is touch, not sight. And the company's beef division president, Bill Rupp, says right now robots just can't feel how deep a bone is or expertly remove a filet mignon. When you get into that detailed, skilled cutting, robots aren't there yet. Someday, I'm sure they will be. The loss of meatpacking jobs would devastate the economy in Dodge. But Joanne Knight says the town has other things going for it. In addition to the projects aimed at boosting tourism, Dodge has an ongoing source of money to spend on making it a nicer place to visit and live. I don't know what we would be like if we wouldn't have passed that entertainment sales tax because it has truly improved the quality of life here given our residents something to Voters do. Voters approved a permanent sales tax increase in 1997. So far, the proceeds have funded the renovation of the Civic Center, the construction of a sports complex used for regional tournaments, a combination casino and convention center, and a new water park near downtown. So that was one of the key things in really pushing that issue and getting it approved. And um, so anyways, I, like I said, it's, it's brought a lot of positive to our community, um, but building those public-private partnerships are key. Joanne has volunteered to drive me around town. Um, this building here, like I said, closed in the mid-90s. Mm -hmm. We start at what used to be the campus of St. Mary's of the Plains, a small college that closed in 1992. And they have turned it into a nonprofit center. They've taken down quite a few of the old dormitories and stuff that weren't utilizable. Efforts and are now underway to reestablish it as a place for other colleges to hold classes. But the main purpose of the tour is for Knight to show me what Dodge is doing to address a problem that it shares with many other rural communities, a lack of affordable housing. The shortage is so bad that crews regularly load abandoned farmhouses onto trucks and haul them into town to be renovated. Right on this corner, we have a new duplex that we built, and then one house up is uh, a house that 
Pride Ag was going to tear down in Jetmore because they needed to expand the elevator. So we moved it from Jetmore here to Dodge and um, we um, already had somebody make an offer on it and we're having After more than an hour of weaving through one housing development after another, Joanne drops me off where we started. Thanks, Joanne. You're welcome. All right, bye-bye. Bye-bye. The Boot Hill Distillery is an example of how the community is working to ramp up its tourist trade by capitalizing on its history. Hard red winter wheat, yellow dent corn, and we have rye in the third one. We haven't started to distill rye yet, but as uh, soon as we're kind of trying to lay down as much bourbon as we can. Uh-huh. Uh, Visitors can sample a range of unique spirits in a rustic tasting room, including one inspired by an ad visible in an 1880s photograph of Front Street, a sign hawking a patent medicine called prickly ash bitters. Banned in 1915 during a crackdown on snake oil cure-alls, it's among the distillery's signature products, says marketing director Lee Griffith. So we did some research. We found the patent, um, traced it down to a gentleman in Texas. We bought the patent. Uh, we had to recreate it as close as possible because there were certain ingredients that we couldn't legally use anymore. Oh, really? Um, Such as? Uh, one of them was called uh, May Apple Root or from Mandrake Root. One of them was Button Snake Root. They were considered not generally regarded as safe by the FDA. I see. Um, or potentially carcinogenic. Yeah, there wasn't cocaine or opium. I, I, right. I wish that I could add that to the story, but so with the exception it wouldn't of, be true. With the exception of a few ingredients, this is the original recipe. It is as original as possible, okay. yes. All right. uh, so it has prickly ash bark in it, which comes from the prickly ash tree. It was called the toothache tree. You ah. chew on the bark and numb your mouth in certain quantities. I see. Um, but it's also, it's got some gin botanics. It has juniper, it has coriander, it has orange peel. Um, it has caraway seed, it has um, chamomile flower, it has allspice in it. Um, wow. It's, um, it's, it has kind of, a, kind of a menthol wallop, and then you get kind of the orange on the back end, and then you have this taste that sticks with you, which is the numbing effect of the prickly ash bark. It's interesting, I'm, I'm getting this mental picture of somebody with a big cauldron Stirring, just tossing in everything they can think of and exactly. stirring it until... Double, like, double, toil and trouble. Right. Yes. <laughs> like that. Yeah. Much like yeah. Dodge itself, the new prickly ash bitters harkens to the past, but offers something different. For the booze, it's tamer ingredients. For the city, modern times mean a more complicated mix of commerce and demographics. In an earlier episode, we talked about the kettle, a combination coffee shop, cafe, and wine bar in Beloit. And we held up the young couple who started it, B and Mandy Fincham, as an example of the kind of people a small community needs to thrive even as it shrinks. And I can't speak for the rest of rural America, but I know Beloit is a special place and it needed a special place like Kettle. Well, the Boot Hill Distillery and the farmers backing it are another example of that. So too is the fact that residents of Dodge City, who are pretty conservative politically, saddled themselves with a permanent sales tax increase to pay for community projects. It's a dichotomy that James Fallows found worthy of note in his book. In national politics and at the state level, Dodge's residents often vote for tax-cutting conservatives. Locally, they pin their city's long-term hopes on a daring tax increase plan. This is known as the Why Not Dodge initiative. Nearly everywhere you look in town, there's another project funded by the ongoing flow of Why Not Dodge revenues. Remember the research we talked about at Iowa State University, research that says while communities can't do much to reverse generations of population loss, they can continue to thrive. To, as the researchers put it, shrink smartly. So shrink-smart communities are those communities that saw faster-than-average declines in population 
but also had above average gains in quality of life. So if you think about the national narrative that's presented in, you know, in, on the east and west coast, everyone thinks that small towns that are shrinking also have falling levels of quality of life. But shrink-smart communities are those that are thriving in terms of quality of life. Unfortunately, shrink-smart communities are rare. Of the nearly 100 small Iowa towns surveyed for the study, only seven were found to be shrinking smartly. That confirms something we probably already knew, that the forces driving population decline, driving the get-big-or-get-out trend in agriculture, are beyond the control of local, even state, policymakers. Still, people like Marcy Penner, she's the director of the Kansas Sampler Foundation, refuse to give up their fight, their fight to save rural communities. So I, I just think if you're looking for the negative, that's very easy to find. But I'll fight for these towns every day because there are young people moving back, there are good things going on. Maybe so, but it's hard to ignore what reporter Corey Brown calls the downward trajectory. She's a native Kansan who returned to write a controversial article about why rural Kansas is, quote, dying. She admires the people fighting to save Main Street businesses or to keep a town's only grocery store open, but she fears it's a losing battle. There were plenty of people who didn't like my story, okay. and I heard back from them saying, you don't understand, we're fighting the good fight, and we're doing fine. That's not doing fine. That's just dying a little slower. There is, however, a fresh focus on the challenges facing rural Kansas. Lieutenant Governor Lynn Rogers is heading up Governor Laura Kelly's new office of, quote, rural prosperity. And he's working on a set of proposals. And so that responsibility weighs very heavily on me. And I think I said it at a number of different places and to our staff is, okay, now we have to do something. A new legislative committee is also working on a rural agenda, though a recent change in its leadership could hinder that work. They won't be the first politicians, of course, offering some sort of plan for the rural plains. And they'll be up against forces that reach far beyond Kansas and that have proven stubborn for a century. But whatever happens, we're going to keep following the story. So check your podcast feeds for updates and give us a review so that more people might listen and then join in the conversation. While you're at it, visit our website, ksnewsservice.org, and subscribe to our newsletter, The Insider. Finally, keep listening to your favorite public radio station for our coverage of the health and well-being of Kansans, their communities, and civic life. For the Kansas News Service and the My Fellow Kansans podcast, I'm Jim McLean. My Fellow Kansans comes from the Kansas News Service, a collaboration of public radio stations KMUW in Wichita, Kansas Public Radio in Lawrence, High Plains Public Radio in Garden City, and KCUR in Kansas City. Jim McLean reported, wrote, and hosted the podcast. Thanks to all of our fellow Kansans who spoke with Jim as he crisscrossed thousands of miles around the state. Scott Cannon and Suzanne Hogan edited the podcast script. Scott also edited digital stories that Jim wrote that appear at ksnewsservice.org. There are some great photographs of Kansas and Kansans there, shot primarily by Chris Neal. Additional voicing for this episode was provided by Nomeen Ujiadine. Ben Stanton worked as field producer, researching, interviewing, and organizing the recordings you just heard. I'm Beth Golay. I worked with Luann Stevens, Jay Schaefer, and Ben in audio production. Primary Color Music composed our theme song, and other music you heard during the season came from Free Music Archive. 
Jordan Kirtley designed our logo. Event planning and social media promotion came together only with the help of Angie Hayfley, Mark Statzer, Asha Lee, Sarah Jane Crespo, Grace Lotz, and Michael Russo. This concludes Season 2 of My Fellow Kansans. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.